Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Angela Clark. Angela works at the Camwell After School Project, a non-profit organisation whose main aim is to advance the education of children by the provision of good, safe and satisfying group play. Uh, Angela, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much, Scott. It's a real pleasure having you with us. Now, um, the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering that today's generation of leaders is going through probably one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19, it would Uh be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent (laughs) the pandemic has affected you and your operations. Um, Certainly, from a leadership perspective, um, as the chair of the um, Canberra After School Project, um, dealing with the kind of the whole management of the organisation around this COVID process, I have found that um, definitely more time, more of my time, um, has been spent in you know direct operational support, um, leadership direction, more so than ever before. Um, we we certainly I don't think we're prepared for. I don't think anyone was really prepared for the extent. Um, and how far-reaching this was going to be. Um, so I think it, it's pulled on every, you know, every kind of um, area of expertise that we have um, to, to help shape, um, you know. And, you know, obviously we've had the influence of the guidance um, from central government and has, we've had to heavily rely on that in, you know, influencing how we move forward from a leadership perspective for the organisation. So it, yeah, it has been it has been a um, a testing time, very challenging time. Um, for more, for, I, I suppose, from the perspective of the fact that um, it's been very difficult to kind of separate out the the personal from the professional. Um, mm. In that, um, you know, at the same time, while trying to um, lead, direct, and support, you know, we, you know, you're also dealing with loss, trauma, um, and all the issues that have come up. Um, around this, um, with the issues around inequality, social injustice, um, you know, all of these issues that are coming up at the same time as the pandemic, um, which has definitely impacted on, um, you know, on us as an organisation for a number of perspectives. Certainly what has happened, what we've seen is, um, you know, we obviously we knew that, you know, we know that there's inequality and all the rest of it. Mm. But I think it's been magnified by this whole process and, you know, from a leadership perspective, having to manage that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a heavy weight. And it's really as well thrust the importance of mental health and well-being back into the limelight, hasn't it? This whole situation due to the social isolation side of things, as well as the mm-hmm. impact of inequalities that have been exposed raw again, as you rightly say there. Just yeah. how important is mental health in leadership, do you think, both in terms of safeguarding not just your own, but also that of people around you as well? Yeah, it's. it's I mean, it certainly has been vitally important. We have seen... People who would normally um, probably not um, been saved by you know w- you know the operations of of working on a day to day basis have been thrown into you know different levels of anxiety and stress. We've seen that from the perspective of staff, um, 
And it's the anxieties around, you know, the whole COVID-19 and, you know, you know, being having to be isolated, not necessarily having a choice in that. Um, The majority, you know, there are some of our staff who had underlying issues. Normally on a day-to-day, that would not have been a problem. Obviously, you know, when you are having to self-isolate because you have underlying issues um, and, and, you know, so you're dealing with the potential complexity of an illness, but also, you you know, your vulnerability because of your illness. So we're dealing with that from a staff perspective, mm. um, but also from the perspective of parents, you know, who um, obviously we are there to support normally, you know, by, you know, by, you know, looking after their children. Um, you know, we're having parents, we've had parents who um, have gone through a number of issues. Um, and it, yes, stress and anxiety, um, but also, um, you know, having to be, you know, looking after your child trying to get your child engaged in kind of the educational process has been a battle um, for lots of parents. But what, what, what it's also certainly highlighted for us is that some of the parents um, were not able from an educational attainment perspective actually able to support their, mm. their children or get, get them to engage in the way that they had hoped. And therefore, their anxiety levels were around those types of issues. And recognizing that, that their children may be missing out, you know, because they weren't able to kind of engage them in the, any online educational process or, you know, or didn't actually have the necessary tools even to engage. So there are all those kind of issues that occurred um, and heightened anxiety levels. And yeah, it's, and, uh, yeah, and it, it was it definitely the children. It was difficult for the children, difficult for the parents, but also difficult for staffing. So, yes, for, so from all of those perspectives, you know the, the the social isolation hit, has hit hit people in different different ways, but it's been far reaching for all of us, really. You're so right, certainly, because the idea of educating children at home, which has been the case over the last few months, is not a one-size-fits-all approach, is it? Because as you rightly say, some people do not have the resources to do it, which I think is why the government is really pushing for children to return in earnest in September to school. And that also throws up its own anxieties because you also have parents who probably are going to be reluctant to send their children back over concerns relating to health risks and contracting the virus and bringing it back into the home as well. Certainly we've already experienced that where, um, and because we, you know, we, you know, we run an after school club, we run a breakfast club. Um, you, you know, we, we've had to, yes, of course, we've done the, the kind of risk assessing, you know, risk, you know, risk assessing with regard to staffing, risk assessing with regard to environment and all of those you know, processes that we've had to undergo. But that, you know, doesn't always um, allay the fears of parents who are still umming and ahhing about whether they send their children back in September. Um, but but in addition to that, I think what's happened is because um, the, the current norm, <laughs> whatever that new norm is, is for um, a lot of people to either have been um, working from home and having to in, adapt their home environment for those people who have had children at home, that's been complex, not easy at all. Um, so there's that, um, but then coupled with the fact that how safe are their children going to be coming back into that kind of education environment? Certainly for CAS, I know that um, our numbers of, of children will have to be reduced 
to ensure social distancing and making sure that the environment is safe. But that will not necessarily allay the fears of, of all parents who will probably want to continue, if possible, um, to um, educate their children at home where, where they can. Um, but it's not going to be sustainable for some, and they recognize that. But at this moment in time, um, the anxiety that they feel kind of far outweighs the, you know, what's, what's, what, what's possible. I suppose, mm-hmm. I suppose during this time, it's been an incredibly difficult and a very sensitive time for many communities and families, as well as businesses, of course, as well. But we have mm-hmm. learnt an awful lot from this period about society, haven't we? But to really sort of harness the positives of that, there do have mm-hmm. to be lessons learned in the future as we move forward. Action taken to address these inequalities that exist, as you say, being one of the big mm-hmm. things to start with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I suppose what 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 this what this whole kind of pandemic situation has done, and it has magnified, you know, some of the inequality, and you know, you know, it's it's, it's mag- it has magnified it, and it, it's almost as if there is a kind of greater divide. Um, you t- you know, when we first started talking, you talked about mental health. Mm. Um, um, you know what we have certainly seen is that the the effects on the mental health of individuals, whether it be you know the staffing themselves, the parents, um, but there's also the you know the there was you know there's the, the issue of furlough, how that's affected people, the fact that even coming out of this whole, well, you know we're not even we're not out of it by any stretch of the imagination, but already seeing the effects of poverty on people, housing. And all of those issues. So it's not just about not just about the the, the childcare provision. Um, you know, it's not just about childcare provision and what we can do. What we have found is that we're having to provide information, support, trying to signpost people, um, those who ha- you know who um, either have lost jobs as well, you know, um, have housing issues because of the fact that although you know they will, we had hoped that people would be safeguarded by and the guidance that have come out around landlords and things like that, a lot of people have been affected in, in, in various ways. Um, and also, even those who are being expected to work from home, um, it was the reason I say about things being magnified, it's, it's, an, you know, it's almost a, it's an expectation that people will be able to, to work from home. But you know, if you already have overcrowding in an environment where people are at home and then you have children and then someone's supposed to create a, an office environment. Um, not everyone has a spare room that they can create into an office or, you know, sometimes, you know, we've heard of instances where, you know, someone's makeshift space is in a bathroom or whatever just to keep away from the children. It's not, it, it, you know, it's, you, you're right, one size does not fit all and, and people's, you know, people's personal um, situations um, will come to the fore at times like this around what's possible and what isn't, what's sustainable and what isn't. Um, you know, you've got some organisations that are saying, well, actually, this is working, so um, we'll probably keep it like this until the end of the year at least and then review it. You know, for some individuals, yeah, I, you know, being isolated has been great. It's been a godsend for some, but for a lot of people, um, you know, it has tested their very nerves. It's tested their, their mental health to the limit. So, you know, social isolation does not, um, does not suit everybody. And 
my, you know, my, I probably feel that there will be an increasing pressure and demand on mental health services as a result of this. Certainly going to be an interesting few months to come. And if we just think about that new normal in a little bit more depth, Angela, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, mm. over the next mm. year or so, as we adapt to this new normal that we're all having to going to get used to, what mm. is next for you and for the Camwell After School Project? And what are you really hoping to achieve as an organisation during this time? Certainly what we are doing, or I mean, we are, we, yes, we've been forced to look at different ways of working. Um, and I suppose if we look at it, to kind of turn it on its head and looking, trying to look at it from a positive perspective, because you can look at, you, you know, we can focus on the negative, um, and, and, but I suppose it's not going to get us anywhere in doing that. Certainly at CAS, but we're, what we're looking at is what are the potential opportunities that are going to come out of this? Um, situation. We understand that yes, we are going to have less um, having to, you know, cater for less children to make sure that we've got a safer environment. But also, what we're looking at is potential collaborations as well with other, you know, with other organisations. Looking at how we can share um, resources, you know, across services, um, and making it work. Because yes, we have suffered as an organisation from a financial standpoint, definitely. We have suffered where, you know, where, you know, from a staffing perspective, whereby, you know, staff don't feel safe to, to return. Um, and we have to look at different ways and innovative ways of actually making it work. Um, we've had to look at technology, reviewing, you know, our processes. So it's, it, what it has is prompted an over, a, 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 I suppose, a, a whole strategic overview of how we operate. Um, what we can provide also as a support mechanism for parents moving forward, which is far more than what we were able to do before. Um, but we're having to look at what additional support we can provide from a, not just from a, um, physical space perspective for parents, for, um, the, for the children, but also from an emotional support for, for parents, um, and what we can do in that perspective. So, but for CASP, it's a definite overhaul of, um, of the service that we provide, but looking at um, opportunities for engagement, um, opportunities also to provide different types of services as well. You know, we're looking at, you know, kind of Saturday schools as well, so extending our hours to make up for some of the shortfalls of what we may have to mm. encounter during the week. So it's just looking at different ways of providing a service and maybe enhancing it, um, you know, by as I say, collaborations, engagement, more volunteers and different things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's far, it's, as I say, it's far reaching and mm. a challenge. It's going to be challenging times, but also exciting times, branching out uh, for sure and continuing to Definitely. assist the, uh, the local community. Um, Angela, Definitely. I wish you all of the luck in the world in uh, that endeavour over the, uh, the next few months, because it is going to be a very uncertain time. And yeah, considering as well just how informative it's been having you joining us on the, uh, the programme today, I would really welcome the opportunity to have you back on the show in a few months time just to catch up on how things are getting on at CASP and also just reassess what point we're at as a society at that point as well. That would be a pleasure. It would be for myself as well, Angela. Really enjoyed Thank having you. you with us today. And most importantly as well, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. 
I was speaking today to Angela Clark from CASP, the Camberwell After School Project. Um, coming up next on the programme today, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and all of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? 
I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, 
I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the 
essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or 
for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now 
about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well 
uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government, but we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge 
is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.